Right, okay. <clears throat> now, let me say, we are a bit behind time tonight, but nevertheless, we must get this study done, all right? Or the, the timing over the weeks is, is just getting a little bit out at the moment. So when the time has come when normally I'm winding up and I'm not, it's not because I'm going on even longer than usual. It's because we've started so late. So, so, so try, try not to get fidgety at about the time we've normally, you know, that we normally end. Anyway, <clears throat> what we're doing tonight is, is the second of our talks on the question that we've asked, is tithing scriptural? So really what we're looking at is our second talk on the whole area of, give, of giving. And for those of you who like subtitles, it's loads of money, right, <laughs> right the loads of money economy. That's the, that's the subject that we're looking at. Now let me cover very, very quickly the foundations that we laid last time in the first talk. And what we saw in regards <coughs> to tithing is that we saw quite, quite clearly that the whole act that tithing, biblically, in actual fact was Israel's tax system, alright? And that we pay our taxes as citizens and that in actual fact tithing is not in the slightest the rule for the church. It's one of the big misunderstandings that Christians have had. Tithing is not incumbent upon us in the slightest. And we saw that the rule in the New Testament for Christian giving is strictly free will offering. So we've seen that tithing is out, dispense with it. It's not scriptural, not for us, not for the church. It was Israel's tax system. But we saw last week, or began to see, that the rule for the church is free will offering. Now, let's start where we finished last, last time. And if you go to um, 2 Corinthians, <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm just going to go over again a verse or some verses that we looked at in, in detail last time. 2 Corinthians 9, and we're going to read from verse 7. Now this is the Bible's teaching to the church. Paul says, <clears throat> and the context is giving, it's financial giving. Paul says, each one must do as he has made up his mind. That is called free will offering. No set percentages, nothing mandatory about this. Each person must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You remember we saw that when Paul says you mustn't give reluctantly, not reluctantly, in the Greek it's ek lupis. And it means something you do out of sorrow, something you do because you've got to, not because you want to. Uh, I said I go to the dentist ek lupes. That that is the meaning of the Greek word, and it's when you're doing something you'd really rather not do, but you've got to do for some reason. Paul says, "Do not give like that." He says also, "Not under compulsion." Now the Greek word for that is ananki, and it means to be constrained. It means to be made to do something. It means to be put under pressure. Paul says, "Do not give." when you're being put under pressure. But the rule is, he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we saw that that Greek word hilaros is the word we get hilarious from. And it comes from the Greek root, which means joyfully, willing, or gladly. 
So that what Paul is saying here, there is only one reason that we would ever end up giving as Christians, and that's because we want to. So the teaching of the New Testament, which is binding upon us as the Lord's people, which is binding upon the church, is simply this. As Christians, we do not have to give. But as Christians, we ought to give. And if we do give, we give because we want to, because we know that God wants us to. But there must be no giving for any other reason than that. Now, one of the reasons that we've got this so wrong is that people have failed to realise that Christian giving isn't God's way of raising money. It's his way of raising children. And we're going to see that in actual fact giving is part of our growth in the Lord. It is part of that process whereby the Lord is bringing us into maturity. It's part of our child training. And in our salvation series we've seen the technical word for that to be sanctification. It's part of the process whereby God is delivering us from the power of sin. And the thing about giving our money is that we are sharing. And in the Bible we get the word fellowship, and it's a buzzword, it's jargon. We, we talk about fellowship without realising what it means. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, it means sharing. And the truth of the matter is, if, if we do not share our money, we do not share a thing. Now I think we've all got to understand that that's true. Can you see what I'm getting at? That if we're not sharing our money, then we're not, in fact, sharing anything at all. There's something else that we need to realise as well, that God doesn't need our money. I'm trying to dispense with all the wrong reasons that people give up, give in, end up giving money away. We've got to see what the right reason is and dispense with the wrong one. Go to Psalm 24, and you'll see what I mean when I'm saying that God doesn't need our money. <clears throat> Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, if the, the earth, with everything it's got, belongs to God, well, so does your money. God doesn't need your money. He's got the whole universe. Everything belongs to him anyway. He owns it. And the truth of the matter is that whatever we've got, we're in actual fact simply stewards, be it money, houses, whatever it is we've got, we're simply stewards of that which already belongs to God. And the point is this, we can either be good stewards of what we have, or we can be bad stewards of what we have. And one day at the judgment seat of Christ, each one of us will give account of what we did with our money and we will be rewarded or we will lose reward accordingly, you see. So what we have is the laws anyway. It's a question of whether we're going to be good or bad stewards. Now, the incredible thing with what we've established so far in these studies is we've seen that tithing is not scriptural. <laughs> Free will offering is what the Bible teaches for the church. And yet, across the board, 
churches have got this universally wrong. Isn't it incredible that you will have to go a long, long way before you'll find a church that teaches this and the rest of the things that I'm going to show you tonight? And you see, because the Bible teaches that giving is not compulsory, and this is the fact of the matter, you do not have to give a penny. It's not compulsory. Free will offering, by definition, is not compulsory. Now, that's what the Bible says. And the Bible is our final authority. The Bible is God's final word in all things. Now, what that means is this. We, therefore, have a divine right to not give money. That is our divine right that God has given us. And because God has given us a divine right to not give money if we don't want to, therefore no one, no matter who they are, has the right to put you under pressure to do it. Can you see the point here? It's very important to realise that even eldership, even government in a church, Elders have no authority whatsoever over anybody in areas where the Bible is not absolutely dogmatic about something. There are many, many things where the Bible gives us the right to decide for ourselves. And no elder has the right to come down on, you know, with authority on these areas. Let me give you an example. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. Because I'll tell you, we've got some jokers today in the kingdom of God who fancy themselves as elders. 1 Corinthians 7. Let's read verses 1 and 2. And what we're going to see, for instance, is that you have a right, a divine right, to marry whom you will, providing they're Christians. Let's see what Paul says. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own, own husband. Go to the chapter of verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's well for them to remain single as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Go down into verse 36. He says, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry. It is no sin. Now can you see in these verses, the Bible tells us that we are free to marry whom you choose. The only restriction on it is that it must be a believer. But apart from that, you're free to marry who you want, assuming, of course, that they actually want to marry you. But can you see, elders, elders have no right whatsoever to dictate in these matters. No one has the authority to say to one believer, you must not marry this other believer. Can you see? Under no circumstances could that ever be the case. Because the Bible gives you the right to choose. Yes. You are free to do any job that you like. 
Now, obviously, barring being a stripper or a drug smuggler, for instance, but then it's because we have the Bible that we know that those jobs are wrong. But can you see the point? You have the right to do what job you want to do. You have the right to choose where you live. Now, can you see, the point that we're seeing is that in issues like this, we can advise each other, but no one, elders included, have the right to tell you, to order you, to make you do something where it's an area that the Bible leaves up to you. And exactly the same way with giving, no one has the right to make you or pressure you or try to get you to give because the Bible gives you the divine right to choose how much you want to give indeed whether you want to give or not if you do not want to give you are free to not do that and you see the trouble with many churches you see eldership can be good or bad but bad eldership is one of two types bad eldership the first type they won't hold you to what the Bible teaches. They're anything goes men. They're men pleasers. They just want to keep the peace. It's bad eldership that does not hold people to what the Bible says. But I'll tell you, it's a bad eldership that holds people beyond what the Bible teaches as well. Can you see what I mean? And when you get elders having a big, you know, sort of like before you get engaged, you've got to go and check it out with the elders, stuff like that, that is totally and absolutely wrong. And so it is in regards to the area of giving as well. So then, this is precisely why we're seeing that free will offerings are exactly what the Bible says they are. Totally and 100% up to you. Now, obviously, that thought brings me to the whole area of collections, all right. Uh, because you go to any churches, they have collections, round comes the plate. Now, I want to tell you something now that might surprise you, or it might be something that you have never thought of before, but the implications of this are quite profound, and it is this. In the New Testament you will not find any examples whatsoever of a church collecting money for its own work and ministry. In the New Testament, churches only ever took collections for another church should they be in financial need. Alright? Let's actually see this. If you go to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, remember I'm saying that in the New Testament churches never had collections for themselves. Romans 15 verse 25, Paul says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So can you see, believers in one place had a collection, but to send to another church, the Jerusalem church, which was going through great poverty at that time. Go to Acts 11. Acts chapter 11 and verse 27. 
Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. And the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. Can you see that? There's no tithing here. There's no, you know, you've got to do this. But each one determined according to his ability to send relief to the brethren who lived in Judea. Can you see? The principle is collections were only taken by churches for other churches. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. And we saw this verse very briefly last time, 1 Corinthians 16. And you remember we saw in this verse that the Corinthian church had already offered, they'd already said, Paul, we want to collect money so that you can take it to other churches in need. And Paul says, concerning the contribution for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, prosper so that contributions need not be made when I come. And these collections were always for completely different churches. So then, what we have seen, a principle here, is that no collections. Sorry about that. It is unscriptural for churches to have collections for their own work. Now then, obviously, it would be quite valid if there was a particular individual in the church who needed money quickly, that would be okay for an individual and an occasional collection. So you have someone uh, sort of say, you know, their husband walks out on them and their husband dies and they need money. It would be quite valid to take a collection like that. But the point is, regular collections by a church for its own work is completely unscriptural. The New Testament church does, just did not do it all right and obviously in regards to this we're seeing that collections were free will there was no pressure but collections were only taken in one ch in a church in the new testament in order to send to another church a church never took a collection for itself now this is why i cannot take collections in churches seriously and uh, I, I mean sort of like I travel around preaching at churches and sometimes I end up leading the services and the worship and I always have to find a way to get out of doing the collection I won't have anything to do with it I won't pray for you know when they come forward and you know sort of like the old prayer I won't touch it because it's unscriptural simple as that I cannot take it seriously you see and you see the point is that what we've got to understand there are two things firstly when you're in a church and round comes the plate firstly that is a collection for that church that's wrong on that count but secondly I don't care what anybody says it's coercion it's as simple as that it's coercion it is pressure it's the very thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians that you must not do pressure people now you can call it an offering you can call it what you like nothing changes the fact that it's a collection and it comes round and the idea is that it makes you put money in there's just no way round that I, at all can yeah. i stop you for a moment and then ask you a few questions so that I'm could you do it at the end do you think could we keep going and then we'll do that at the end right. fine okay right so 
therefore, we've sort of seen this thing about, you know, to have the, you know, churches always collecting money for themselves is not what the Bible teaches. But also, in churches, you tend to get constant appeals from the leadership for money. Always appeals for money. Can you see, in exactly the same way, that goes against what the Bible teaches, because it's pressure pure and simple and in actual fact I mean some time ago I was preaching at a church in London and uh, I mean sort of like there the collections people stood in the front with buckets and you had to go forward and put your money in that's a disgrace and in actual fact I have not been back to that church and I will not go back to that church even though they wanted to throw a lot of that money at me I'm sorry We've got to stand by what the Bible teaches. We've got to go with what the Word of God says. And then also, in regards to this, there are some churches, and house churches are particularly guilty of this. Not all house churches. Most house churches are great, but some house churches, well, they've got the very heavy shepherding eldership, and your accounts are actually scrutinised, and the elders decide how much you've got to tithe to the church. I mean, that, that is an absolute outrage. But can you see whether it's the heavy shepherding of, of elders scrutinising your accounts, or whether it's that harmless little plate coming round? Can you see it doesn't change the fact that this is not the way that the early church conducted itself in regards to, you know to their financial dealings. And of course the point that collections of this type are wrong is because it is robbing people of their divine right to not give if they don't want to. Can you scope 2 Corinthians 9 7? Each one must do as he has made up his mind. Can you see that all this collection, all these financial appeals, they're designed to pressure you to give money where you wouldn't have done otherwise. And therefore, it is taking away people's right, given them by the Bible, to not give if they don't want to. Now, there's something else as well. We've seen that churches didn't have collections for themselves. There's something else. In the New Testament, no minister ever took collections for his own ministry either. Didn't matter who he was, apostle, prophet, itinerant, church base, it didn't matter. There was no such thing as this in the New Testament, this asking for money for your ministry. And it's like so many people today in ministry, and I'm not saying they haven't got a ministry, I'm not saying that at all, but I mean the constant flood of their, you know, I mean these guys live by faith and hints. You're always getting their prayer letters. They're always writing you saying that this is a faith venture. They're praying for £2,000. I mean, this isn't faith. This isn't what the Bible teaches. It's pressure. Or sort of people who go along to churches and they charge fees and things like that. This just is not what the Bible teaches in any way at all. And we've got to see these principles in the Bible and we've got to start living buy them as well. I mean, it's like today, well, I mean, in, in this country, many Christians are, are coming more and more under the influence of the American prosperity 
teachers. You know, these guys who say, well, look, you know, sort of you, you tithe your money, you give your money to the Lord, and of course the Lord will give it back to you a hundredfold. Everyone gets excited. But of course the initial down payment, the money you give, is, has to go to that evangelist, you see. And they're pulling in millions, these guys, living in absolute opulence, you see. And, and doing that through absolutely anti-scriptural uh, means of getting that money because what they're doing is they're preying on an absolutely despicable motive they are getting money out of other Christians by giving them the promise that if you give to them God will give you even more back that is absolutely horrendous we've got to understand it's a money spinner go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 because the Bible covers guys like this Paul dealt with it and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 let's read verse 17 listen to what Paul says and in the light of what I've said I think you'll find this verse will make sense he says for we are not like so many now notice that Paul's in ministry. He says, we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. Peddlers of God's word. The Greek word is kapluo. In the AV, it's got corrupt. But do you know what the meaning of the word is in the Greek? It means a huckster. It's like these guys in the Wild West, you know, they're sort of like the medicine man with his miracle cure. And the point is that these are guys who are pre and, and they were going around in Paul's days. Paul says there are loads of them. But they're going around and they're making themselves money by selling the gospel. Their ministry is simply giving a commodity and they are getting money out of it. And can you see that Paul's writing and says that's not the way we have done it. That's not the way we have done it. We are men of integrity, he is saying. So can you see that what's happening today is that the whole financial thing in the church, but especially with this prosperity stuff, it's bringing the gospel into absolute disrepute because people are making a bundle out of it. They're selling the gospel for big profits. Now this in fact is precisely why Blinder and I live by faith. I'm a full-time preacher it's my job but the reason I live by I mean we do not ask for money I make no financial arrangements whatsoever uh, whatsoever we trust God to provide us with money and the reason is therefore there's no way that we can fall into these kind of financial traps that are there waiting to catch the unwary we know that God will provide so we we minister for free if I'm asked to go somewhere, if it's right, we go. There's no mention of money. If people give, fine. If they don't, will the Lord get the money we need to us through somewhere else? Can you see that? And also, it's safe as well. Because if I ever go off beam, God can shut me down just like that. Can you see? Because I never ask for money, because I never send out prayer letters, if God didn't provide for me, I'd be finished. Can you see? It's dead easy for God to get me out of the ministry. Now, can you see the safety of having that kind of arrangement, you see?
And also, in regards to it, I mean, today, also financially, we've got this incredible phenomenon going on, and this is with the big speakers in our country, where nowadays they're going around creating their own market. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, I'll tell you. For instance, I'm not going to give any names, but there's a fellowship not too far away from here, which is quite well known, you know, because it attracts real big crowds and that. And they have all the big, I'm talking about the big worldwide ministries, the real big international boys there, all right? And, and, and they come monthly, you see, but there's a fellowship as well. Now, a while back, I mean, it never sort of, you know, it didn't happen, but a while back, one of the leaders approached me asking me if I would be willing to go and do some teaching there. And I said, if you want me to, I will be willing. But what was so interesting is, is that they told me, look, I'm afraid there won't be any money in this for you because, I mean, we can hardly pay these big speakers because their fees are so high. Now, the fact that they weren't going to pay me is neither here nor there, because if they'd have wanted me to go, I'd have gone. In fact, I did once or twice. It's not that, but can you see what's happening? Is these big guys are going around with big, big fees, drawing big collections, and money and resources are being taken out of the local situation, and it's all filtering up to the big guys at the top. I call it charismatic capitalism. So that you've got fellowships who have all the big speakers, but they, it costs so much money to get these big speakers that every spare penny they've got is going to the big speakers. There are no resources for local ministries to be raised up. Now, can you see how Satan loves that? Can you see what a mockery that is, the mockery that we're making of it? And it's more than that. It's not just the money. It's general resources. Because, again, with that particular fellowship, if you went there to these big meetings, you think, wow, a thriving fellowship of hundreds of people. It's not at all. There's about 20 people in that fellowship, maybe 25 at the outside. But because they get the big speakers in, Christians from a radius of 100-odd miles go to those meetings to hear the big speakers. Can you see what's happening? So that when the big speakers are there, all these hundreds of Christians are there to listen. Well, next week, the big speaker is in a different part of the country. And all those Christians who are at the meeting in Essex, they all pile down to the other end of the country to be in the next one in Suffolk or, or Northampton. Can you see? And these guys, they're just having people following them around. And it's rather getting to the place now where because local situations, the local church is being so debilitated by all this, is that you've got Christians who have become dependent on getting onto the big meetings. And I see Christians who remind me of junkies, they're like heroin addicts. They're going to these big meetings to get their fix of Jesus. And rather than living with Jesus daily in fellowship with their local friends, they're dependent on getting to the big meetings. I mean, this is absolutely horrendous, what's happening in regards to this. Anyway, we have seen so far that you have an inalienable right to give, in regards to money, what you choose. If you want to give, you can, but if you want to give nothing, it is your divine right to give absolutely nothing. And no one has the right to try and pressure you, convince you, or coerce you to do otherwise. But what we're going to move on to now is to see, right, 
But what does the Bible say concerning those who want to give? Can you see? You do not have to, and we've established that. But what we want to find out now is that if you do want to give, does the Bible give us any counsel? Does the Bible give us any advice how to do it? Does the Bible give us any guidelines? And yes, it does. And let's actually have a look at them. First of all, go to Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. And this is what Jesus said. He said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Now, the first thing that we see in that is simply the Bible says, if you are going to give, if you want to give, give generously. You don't have to give, but if you want to give because you love the Lord, then give generously. You aren't going to be the loser by it. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where we started off. And in verse 6, Paul says, the point is this, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So there we see the first principle. If you're going to give, give generously. Do it properly. Don't play around with it. Don't pick at it. Do it generously, with an absolutely open heart. Go to Mark chapter 12. Something else that Jesus teaches about this. Mark chapter 12. And what we're going to see is now, is that also giving should be at least at times sacrificial. Mark 12, verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, her whole living. Go now to Philippians chapter 4. Because there Jesus was absolutely thrilled that this widow gave because she loved the Lord. And she gave sacrificially. I mean, she couldn't have given any more. She gave everything that she had. And in Philippians 4, verse 18, and this is one of the verses which just gets taken so out of context, it's unbelievable. I'll tell you, the prosperity teachers have the gall to use this verse, all right? Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am filled, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Now the prosperity teachers miss that verse out, they go on to the next one, listen to this. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now can you see what a false picture you paint when you just say, God will my God will provide, no! absolute rot. Look, what is the condition of that promise? 
Paul has written to the Philippians and he says, my God is going to provide every need that you have in abundance. But why is Paul writing it? Because that church has sent him a gift that hurt them financially. Can you see what he says? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice. This was a financial payment. They wanted to give Paul some money. They did that and it was a sacrificial amount. Therefore, Paul says, because you've given sacrificially, therefore God will provide all your need. Can you see the condition? for God providing for our needs is sacrificial giving. I mean, it doesn't mean that if you've already got, you know, sort of more than enough, and I mean, 90% of people in this country have got more than enough. It doesn't mean that if you suddenly fancy a better car, well, my God will provide all your needs. I mean, that is absolute rubbish. You know, I mean, sort of like your Honda Prelude is beneath you now. It needs to be a Merc. I mean, can you say, oh, my God will provide all your... I mean, like, it may sound ridiculous, but Christians talk like this. There are guys who preach like this. Can you see the condition of God providing is sacrificial giving? And that is precisely why we can afford to give sacrificially. Because God is not going to let anyone be the loser by real sacrificial giving, born of the fact that they love the Lord and that they want to share everything that they have. Go to Matthew 6, let's see something else that Jesus said about giving. Because all these are little pointers that when you add them all up, you get the picture of if we want to give, how we ought to do it. Matthew 6. Verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If you do something, if you do what the Bible would call a good work in order to press somebody, do you know what your reward is? They're impressed. Alright? But that's all you get. Nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. You've just impressed somebody. Oh, the Lord said that's what you wanted, that's what you had, isn't it? Thus, when you give alms, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by men. And if you do something to get praised, do you know what happened? You'll be praised. And at the judgment seat of Christ, when you say, what about that, Lord? And you say, they praised you. And you think, oh, is that all? Yep, he said, you got what you wanted. According to your faith be it unto you. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you do something for no ulterior motive, then father will reward you at the judgment seat of Christ. But the point is this, Jesus says when it comes to giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So what we're seeing is, give secretly whenever possible. Now, obviously, this isn't always possible to do. I mean, I'm not going to say that any giving that isn't done in secret is invalid. That would be ridiculous. But we're seeing the principle that wherever possible, give secretly. It's not always, but if you can. But having said that, when you can't give secretly, when any giving you need, you know, that you do is so, you know, let's say that just one other or maybe more people see it, don't let there be a big show, all right? I mean, don't make a big thing of it. You want it to, to be as unnoticed as possible. Because the only person we really want to see 
smiling is his father. He's the only one we're concerned about. It doesn't matter what other people think, it's what the law thinks. But also when you give, no strings attached. Very, very important. No strings attached. Now, I, I mean, I, I have actually had people who, who, I mean, out of the goodness of their hearts, I mean, okay, I live by faith, I don't ask for money, but if people feel it's right, they provide. Obviously, that's the way it works. But I've had people who have done that and then realised that they're not giving to me at all, they're buying me. They're buying me. Can you see what I mean? That they're buying in. And that sometimes it's quite possible, whether it's giving money or just doing a good deed, that in helping someone in whatever way, you can actually do it to get power over them. That you're making them beholding to you. That's, that's a terrible thing to do. Because if you do that, it's not a gift. It's merely a payment for services expected, you see. And then later on you realise that these people want something from you. And, 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 and you know, special treatment or something like that. And of course, what's coming over is, well, look at all we've done for you. And what they're saying is it wasn't a gift at all. We've paid our pockets. We bought you. That thing now is our right. That's a terrible thing because you're putting people in bondage to you, which, which is always an awful thing to do. So no strings attached. Giving absolutely freely. Now let's just have a look at a couple of things that the Bible <coughs> teaches actually work as a hindrance to giving. All right. And there are two things I want to home in on. And the first one, if you find 1 Timothy 6... And we're asking, what are some of the hindrances to giving? In the sense, we're seeing we don't have to give, but we ought to give. So if we're not giving, which we're quite free to do, but if we're not giving, what might be some of the things that kind of, uh, you know, sort of stop us? And in 1 Timothy 6, you do get what is certainly the main one. And it's quite simply this, love of money. Let's read 1 Timothy 6 from verse 6. There is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Now I'll actually tell you what that means in a minute, because, you yeah. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. Now, there are one or two things we need to take from that. Firstly, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, I'm going to say this carefully, and I want you to listen to this carefully so you don't misunderstand me. It is a sin to desire to be rich. It is not a sin to be rich... It is a sin to want to be rich. Now, have you got that? It's a sin to want to be rich, not to be rich, but to want to be rich. Now, we need to get that into our hearts, that that is sinful. That is sinful to be wanting to be rich and well off. Because the motives are, well, they're just so atrocious. I mean, on the one hand, there's wanting to live in the lap of luxury, well, that's what the Bible calls being effeminate. Uh, in, in the old AV Bible, you get the word effeminate that comes up. It doesn't mean as in transvestite or something like that. It means lovers of luxury. All right? But also it's to impress people and, again, to get power over people. So don't desire to be rich. 
And when he says that the love of money is the root of all evils, you've got to understand that what he's saying by that is that if the love of money gets into your heart, if you fall into that sin, it's the root of all evil because then, eventually and progressively, there'll be nothing you will not do to get money. Your moral standards will be lowered proportionately to how much you want to better yourself. Can you see what I'm saying? So when he says the love of money is the root of all evils, it doesn't mean that every evil is brought about because people love money. He's saying that if the love of money gets a grip on your heart, if that sin gets a grip on you, there is no evil that it won't potentially sprout. There is nothing that you won't do eventually to get more and more money. And you'll find that your moral standards absolutely going out of the window. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon was simply a Hebrew way of talking about material possessions. Now understand that you cannot serve God and mammon. I mean, this is an act this is a statement of truth. Um, you know, I mean, it's simply a fact. Rhinoceroses cannot fly. That means you will never meet a flying rhinoceros. It is equally true that you cannot, whether, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't care if, 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 if you're born again, baptised in the Spirit, speaking tongues, don't care anything about that. The Bible says, regardless of all that, you cannot serve God and mammon. You are either serving one or the other. Uh, that is just the truth. So therefore, can you see that we've got to understand that whereas money is not evil in itself, money is dangerous. Can you see? It's not wrong to have it, but it's wrong to want it, you see. So we must really make sure that, that our money and that our possessions are truly surrendered to the Lord. All right. Go back to 1 Timothy. Because remember, I've said it's wrong to want to be rich, it isn't wrong to be rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich at all. But the Bible does have a little something to say to people who are rich. 1 Timothy 6 and 5 verse 17. Or maybe some of you, you're not rich at the moment, but maybe one day you will be rich. Well, this bit will then apply to you. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. And Paul says, As for the rich in the world... Charge them not to be haughty. You see, haughty, because riches, people look at you and they're impressed. That's only because they're Burks. I mean, the only people impressed with people because they're rich. I mean, they're Wallies. It's as simple as that. It's their own problem. See, so there's always a temptation. If you're rich, you're haughty with people looking up to me. Look at my BMW. Nothing wrong with a BMW. Look at my Mercedes. Nothing wrong with a Mercedes. Look at my big house. Nothing wrong with a big house at all. But you've got to be aware the danger of haughtiness is there. So Paul says, as for the rich, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches. See, because if you get riches, you can lose them, and they might be gone. And believe me, there are some people who are very, very rich, and do you know what God's going to do if they really do knuckle under and surrender to him? He's going to take...
right with God, they would end up not rich anymore, but just average. But there are other Christians who one day, they're average or maybe poor now, but one day they're going to end up rich because God knows that he can entrust that with them. But what Paul says, uh, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous. So it's quite simply this, the more you prosper, the more generous you ought to become with your money. Again, I emphasise, you don't have to be. Can you see, you don't have to give, but we're seeing that we ought to give, therefore, the more we prosper, proportionately the more that we ought to be giving. Now, there's a second hindrance to giving that I want to deal with very quickly as well, and I'm just chucking this in, but I think it's important. Go to Romans, Romans chapter 13, and it's this, debt. Romans 13, verse 8. Paul says, Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love one another. And today, we've got to face it, we live in the credit card society. Now, I want to just, in one sentence, tell you what the Bible says about this. If you can't afford it now, save up for it. That is the teaching of the Bible. If you can't afford it now, save up for it. What did we read earlier? When Paul says, having food and clothing, let us be there with content. So why on earth do we need to be going out, buying things on the tick, so that we've got them now? We should be content without them. Avoid debt like the plague. I mean, that is what the Bible teaches. And you see, the point is, think about it. I mean, for, I mean, you're in bondage if you're in debt. It's as simple as that. But I'm looking at this from the point of view as hindrances to giving. We've seen that love of money is a hindrance to giving, because you, I mean, I, I love Belinda, I'm not giving her to you. So someone who loves money ain't going to give their money to someone else. So love of money is a hindrance to giving, but so is debt. And the reason that debt is, is simply because if your entire wage packet is needed to pay your HP payments, how can you give any money away when every penny you've got is already tied up in debt? Can you see that? And this is why the Bible tells us to stay away from debt like the plague. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. I mean, I'm not going to go into this in detail. Mortgages would be an exception to this. To have a mortgage, assuming you're not mortgaged up to the eyebrows, only an idiot mortgages himself up to his eyebrows, that is just as bad. But if you can comfortably get a mortgage, that is an exception. And the reason it's an exception is quite simply because it's an investment. And in the long term, it gives you financial independence. And the reason that God hates debt is because it puts you in financial bondage. So can you see, only a twit rents if he can comfortably buy. Can you see? Because by the time you've bought it, it's yours, it's an investment, you're in bondage to no man. In fact, you're freer than someone else who can only rent. So there we have an exception to the rule. Another one would be uh, borrowing in regards to your business in order to expand. I mean, that would be another legitimate, again, assuming you weren't going in over your head and it's not bad business, but that would be a legitimate sort of borrowing because, again, can you see it's investment 
for long-term financial independence. But apart from those exceptions, things like mortgages and borrowing in order for your business to expand and stuff like that, you see, the thing is that investment is okay, but when you buy the latest video machine on HP, that's no way that's an investment. Can you see? All you've got in the long term is a video machine that you've paid about £100 more for than if you saved up and bought it without getting into debt. And remember, debt is a mug's game. When you borrow money, you're giving people money to let you have their money for a while. I mean, it's a mug's game, and we need to avoid it. Now, having said that, if there are people here who realise that they are in the wrong sort of debt, then here, in Romans, when Paul says, oh, no one anything, that sounds a bit sort of final. But in fact, the Greek has got tenses that we don't have in English. And a literal translation is that what Paul is saying is he says, stop going on and continuing being in debt to people. So the point is that if you've got debts, tonight, repent of them. Say, Lord, I'm sorry, they're wrong. And you're right with God from that moment. Pay them off, make sacrifices to pay them off as soon as you can, and then you're right with God. Okay, so there we've seen a couple of hindrances to giving. What I want to move on to now is, right, okay, if we want to give, we've seen how we ought to, generously, sacrificially, stuff like that. So where ought we to give? All right, we're saying we want to be generous with our money. Where does God want our money to go? Primarily, there are three areas where Christian giving should go to, and we're going to look at them very quickly. The poor, full-time Christian ministries, and into your general church fund. Uh, go to Acts 4. Let's have a look at the poor first. Acts chapter 4, and in verse 34, we read, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made to each as any had need. Go over to Galatians chapter 2. And in verse 10, this is Paul writing about when he went to Jerusalem to see the other apostles. And he's writing what they told him. And he says, one of, he says, only they would have us remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. And then finally, into James, James chapter 2, verse 15. Paul, uh, James says, if a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So here we see quite clearly that one of the emphases in the Bible is that Christian giving must go to the poor. Therefore, we immediately see that giving to charities is perfectly legitimate, assuming the charity is legitimate. All right, we're not talking about these ones that, you know, kind of get arms to revolutionary groups or things like this. But legitimate charities are legitimate places for Christians to give their money. But there's one proviso I do want to put in there. Remember that charity begins at home. Charity begins in your own church. So therefore, it would be really silly 
if we ended up giving money to charities which goes to people we don't know if we're not looking after people we do know can you see that would be a little bit of hypocrisy there you know but certainly giving to charities is quite you know is quite okay so there we've seen giving to the poor now then secondly full-time ministries if you go to 1 Timothy just two verses on this 1 Timothy chapter 5 Verse 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. And there, Paul is actually quoting from Jesus' words in Luke's Gospel. So here we see quite clearly that full-time ministries Men who are called into full-time ministry in the church ought to be supported by the church. Uh, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. I couldn't resist getting that bit in. Go over to Galatians. Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. And Paul says, Let him who is taught the word... And I, if you've got men who are full-time leading the church, he says, let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Well, that's fair enough, isn't it? Because if you're not in full-time leadership in the church, you can go out and get a job, an employer will give you money. All right. Bible, you know, sort of Bible teachers and pastors can't do that because God has called them to work full-time in the church. Therefore, it seems fair enough that let those, you know, share all good things with him who teaches you the word. Now then, what's interesting is that we see here then an inherent contradiction here. Because I have said prior that it is wrong for men to ask for money in ministry. And it is. That is precisely why Blinder and I live by faith. We, do, we, we never ask for money. Absolutely never. And yet here I'm showing you that Bible says that for instance, that full-time ministries have every right to be paid and to be paid generously as well. So can you see that inherent contradiction there? But the point is that what's so important is that you don't get people going around asking for money for their ministries because God is quite able to provide for them. Go to Matthew chapter 10 and I'll show you the reason for this paradox. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 7, and you'll see why it is. I mean, Paul teaches, you must, I mean, Paul teaches that full-time ministers, and I'm not talking about ordained clergy now, but he says that men who are full-time in the church must be paid by the church, yet Paul also teaches that it's wrong for full-time people to take collections and ask for money. And the reason is in Matthew 10 and verse 7, and look what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, Preach as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, give without pay. Can you see? Jesus has said that men who are, who are full-time in the ministry, their ministry is free. It doesn't cost you a thing to have me minister to you. It's absolutely free. And God will provide for those people in, 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 in the position I'm in, in the way that he wants to. So there we've seen that secondly, that there is a, that, that Christian giving ought to partially go to full-time ministries. And of course the point about giving to your church is quite simply this, that you are free 
to in any circumstance, in any instance, you're free either to give directly to the need. So if you meet someone who's poor, you're free to give directly to them. If you find a charity you want to support, you're free to give directly to them. Uh, if you're finding a ministry that you want to support, you are free to give directly to them. So that's the first way you can do it, giving directly to the need. But secondly, you can give to your elders into your church fund and allow them to decide where the money ought to be going to. Can you see? So there are the two ways of giving, directly to the need or into the church fund. Right, now then, a last, a last few points. Firstly, Superman has X-ray vision, but he can't see through lead. His X-ray vision can't penetrate lead. Now, I have noticed over the years that when I've got my jacket on, that all my jackets have got their inside pocket on the left-hand side. Now, what that means is that when I put my wallet in my jacket pocket, it's covering my heart. And what that has led me to realise is quite simply this. Superman's X-ray vision cannot penetrate lead, but the Holy Spirit cannot penetrate through an unsurrendered wallet. And it is absolutely true. It is absolutely ridiculous to think that we truly love God and that we truly love our brothers and sisters and that we truly love the world out there if our money belongs to us and not God. Now remember, you don't have to give, but we're seeing that we ought to give. And so therefore, the Bible talks about the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Well, the truth is that if you've got an unsurrendered wallet, the Holy Spirit can't get through to get that love shed abroad in your heart, because he can't get through money that is unsurrendered. So, therefore, we have got to really face honestly the question, is my money, are my possessions, is everything I have, is it really surrendered to God in order that he can do with it precisely what he wants. And you see, one of the things that we've got to understand, because remember I said earlier that giving isn't God's way of raising money, it's his way of raising children. Because giving is to do with maturity. Now, a short while ago, we spent a bit of time with a friend of ours who we hadn't seen for a few years. So, getting back together with him, you know, it's, it's a chance to, you know, he's different where different years have passed, you see. And we were talking about the Lord and about some of the things that are the most important things to us. And I mean, undoubtedly, you know, the last time I saw this guy, the most important thing to him would have been things like miracles and casting out demons and stuff like that. And we were chatting, and he was saying that one of the greatest burdens that he's got is the way that he can see in the kingdom of God, the way that there are Christians with money coming out of their ears actually mixing in fellowship with other Christians who hardly have what they need to survive. Now this was his great burden, and what that told me is that that guy had grown in the Lord through those years. Can you see? Because giving is to do with maturity. And you see, healing and miracles and casting demons out of people, I want to tell you that's got nothing to do with maturity whatsoever. Whatsoever. I was doing that within weeks, becoming a Christian. All right. It's got nothing to do with it. 
Now, you see, the thing is, it's because they don't need character. There is no character needed to work signs and wonders. I mean, think of it. Just supposing that I went home tonight, all right, and I had some kind of vision that was guaranteed to give me the type of faith I don't have at the moment. But say Jesus actually physically came to me and he said, Beresford, I want you to go to this meeting tomorrow. There's going to be 500 people there. And at that meeting, everyone you lay hands on is going to be healed. Now, can you see, if Jesus came to you physically and told you that, you wouldn't have any doubts at all, would you? So the point is that if I could have that kind of assurance that I was going to go to a meeting like that and everyone I laid hands on were going to, you know, be healed and demons come out, I'll tell you, wild horses wouldn't keep me away. I'd be that keen to get there. But why is it that wild horses wouldn't keep me away? Well, I'll tell you, firstly, it'd be incredibly exciting, wouldn't it? Now, that alone, if that's why I was so keen to go, that's a wrong motive. So I could go and do it with a wrong motive, no character. Even better, everyone, oh, Beresford, he laid hands on people and they were healed. I mean, that would revolutionise my... Churches that can't stand me would suddenly invite me to come and preach, wouldn't they? Ego. I could go and do it for the reason of ego. My goodness. Now, can you see what I'm meaning? that things like miracles, we need them, I'm not saying anything against them, but they're nothing to do with character, alright? But giving is. Now then, let me ask you this question. Is it rather the case that if it's true that wild horses wouldn't stop you going to a meeting like that, is it also true that wild horses wouldn't make you give your money away? Now can you see the contrast? If we're to get excited about things like healing and miracles, and why not? Jesus is exciting. But why aren't we excited about giving our money away? Can you see what I'm saying? You can get excited about miracles for the wrong reason. But when you give your money away, if you're excited, it can only be for the right reason. Can you see what I mean? Therefore, that's why I'm saying that giving, it comes out of maturity. It's to do with character. That is why... Therefore, I'm saying that giving is part of God's sanctification process in us. Because every time we give, we're releasing a little bit more of the world. Not that there's anything wrong with the money. Not that there's anything wrong with that which we're releasing. But we're getting that bit freer of the hold that it had over us. That is what's wrong. Okay, so giving leads on to maturity. Let's get a bit more into giving. Let's get more into healing. Let's get more into casting demons out of people. Let's get more into the knees up stuff, the charismatic ballyhoo. Let's have more, more of that. But let's not only have that. I got so bored with that because it's all there was. It's all there was. And on its own, it's boring. And it doesn't glorify God. But when we've got that with maturity and sacrificial giving and love, well, that's when this country is going to start catching fire. Something else. Be careful where you give your money as well. Now, I'm not going to tell you things that you mustn't do with your money because you've got every right to do what you like with your money. I'm not now going to break the very rules that I've, I've outlined from the Bible. But I am going to advise you to be careful where you give your money. Let me ask you, when that collection plate comes round, do you really want to be paying heretics and practicing homosexuals and idolaters to be spreading their deception? 
Do you really want to pay Anglican clergy and Catholic clergy and Methodist clergy to do this kind of thing? Can you see, we've got to start being a little bit careful about where we do give our money. Millions of Christians are financing Satan spreading deception in our country. Oh, that's a thought, isn't it? Oh dear, oh dear. But I'm sorry, it's true. We've, you know, we've got to be consistent about this and we've got to be, you know, honest about this. But you see, there's another thing, that, there's another implication that comes from that, because I may well now have raised a doubt in your mind as to whether you can really, in all good conscience, give money to your church. Can you see? You might have realised that any money that goes into your collection plate at your church, and I've already showed you the collection plate shouldn't come around anyway, but any money that you're putting in it, perhaps you've now realised that you're paying, you know, heretics. You're, you're financing deception. You're financing practicing homosexuals who go and preach in their churches on the Sunday and then they go and have Sunday dinner with their boyfriends. No, I'm, I'm not. Can you see? Men who are unwilling to repent. It's more than that. You're paying men and women, because there are women in full time in the churches, who are sexually immoral heterosexually. You are paying men who are telling people that God isn't actually objectively there. The Bible isn't actually true. Can you see? We're financing an anti-Christian system. Now, if that's made you realise that you can't, in all good conscience, give money to your church anymore, I'm sorry, you've now got another problem. How can you go to a church where you can't, in all good conscience, give money? If you're in a church where you can't, in good conscience, put your money in that collection plate, well, I'll tell you, you're in a church you shouldn't be in. I'm sorry, this is radical. There are implications to this. You know, I mean, sort of, this is why I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not preaching somewhere every night this week. You know, people don't like the implications. But it's true. We've got to think these through. And you see, let me come back to the prosperity teachers as well. Remember, I'm saying be careful where you give your money. I mean, if you give your, and, and nowadays, it's not just the Americans. Now, it's, we, we got our own, you know, bulldog breed bred in Britain versions of them now, the big boys. And you see, the point is that the only reason they can only survive as long as there are suckers like us who are prepared to get our wallets out. Can you see, if Christians stop giving them money, they go out of business, and then the deception that they're spreading will be called to a halt. So be careful where you give your money. And there's one last point that I want to make, and this more goes back to what we did last time. In the first talk, we, saw mo we, we spent most of the time demolishing the idea that tithing is for Christians. Tithing is not for Christians. And we saw as well that tithing wasn't even a tenth. Do you remember? Tithing is 23 and a third or 25 and a third percent. So when people say Christians have got a tithe, when they say tithing is 10%, they don't even get the amount right, you see. But we saw that tithing is not the rule for the churches. But let me say this. If it appears that for certain periods during your life that organisationally you believe that God wants you to be doing that proportion of a tenth, no problem. You're absolutely free to do that. 
but don't do it because it's tithing. Can you see what I mean? So if a tenth seems right, brilliant, but don't whatever you do think I've got to give a tenth, a tenth is what I'm going to give. No. Firstly, you give if you want to give, and then you give how much God is saying he wants you to give. All right. If it's a tenth, fine, but who knows, next year it might be a fifth. The year after it might be a twentieth. Can you, know, can you see, you've got to sort this out with God. So a tenth is okay, as long as you don't think of it as a rule. It isn't a rule in any way at all. Okay, I want to basically end off with a really natty quote now. And it's a good one. Who's heard of Voltaire? No friend of Christians. But I think he summed this subject up brilliantly. He said, money's like muck. It's only good when it's spread around. And I think that that crystallises the teaching of money in the kingdom of God. All right. Money is only good. It's like muck. It's only good when it's spread around, shared out. I'm not talking communism. I'm not talking communism. I'm not even talking socialism because the Bible is not socialist. I'm not saying it's SDLP and I'm not saying it's conservative, but it definitely isn't socialist. That's not what I'm saying. But can you see this sharing has, I mean, that the mark of the early church was the way they had fellowship. They shared their lives. But what stood out almost as the outward symbol is that they shared their possessions and they shared their money. There's just one more question I must answer, because I know that these two studies we've done have raised a, a terrible question. You see, what have we seen? We've seen no collections. Churches mustn't take collections for their church. It's as simple as that. People are free to give into the church fund, but, but you don't take collections for your, you know, Can you see the difference? So the question is this. How's our church going to get the money we need? That's, that is, now, when I've spoken to people who have said, what you're saying isn't right, what you're saying isn't right, they have never been able to demonstrate it from the Bible. The reason they don't like it is within their hearts they're saying, oh, but how will my church get the money? And all the elders would say, how will I get paid? You know, they're saying, how are we going to get money if we don't force it out of people? That, that's, that's the problem that they've got to face. The answer to that is quite simply this, and I've lived by faith for 12 years, alright? The answer is this, teach and obey what the Bible says. And I'll tell you, try trusting the Lord. Works. It works. I'll leave it there.